We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The baseball season is go, go, go. It's nonstop, relentless for every night, six straight months, and then hopefully another month in October. You also have work, friends, family, and a million other things going on. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. I mean, the mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when your beer is cold. Is there anything better than opening up your refrigerator after a long day, seeing that icy cold Coors Light can or bottle in your fridge? The answer is no, there's nothing better. That's why when it's time to chill, you choose Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So that's why when you want to hit reset, reach for a beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate. We are breaking down all aspects of Yankee baseball. This is the Bronx Pinstripe Show with your hosts, Andrew Rotondi and Scott Reinen. Let's go. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Bronx Pinstripe Show, episode 413. Listen, we're all struggling. There's no sports. There's no baseball. There's nothing going on. You may be quarantined. You may be locked in your house. You probably have fought with someone at the grocery store over a carton of eggs and maybe a loaf of bread and definitely toilet paper. So we need we need sports. We need baseball content. We need people talking baseball more than ever. Today on the show, I have Connor Newcomb. He does an Orioles podcast for Locked On. He's got to do a daily podcast, so you thought it was uh, tough to do. You thought, you know, I'm in a bad spot for a weekly, or me and Scott have to do a weekly or bi-weekly podcast. Can't imagine doing a weekly, uh, daily podcast with uh, no Orioles games, especially. Like, what the hell are you going to talk about? So uh, we get into a lot of different things on this episode. 
obviously talking about the 2020 season and what the Orioles have to look forward to, their prospects, some of the veteran players on the team like Trey Mancini and his health status. But I also give him a hard time about some some Yankees-Orioles classic matchups like 1996, 2012, and some other things like that. So we kind of get into a bunch of different things. Um, before we get to the show, just want to take a minute to remind you guys, uh, submit your mailbag questions. We want to do as many mailbag questions, voicemails, call the voicemail line 646-480-0342. Uh, t- leave your out of left field stories. Like We want to get as much fan interaction, listener interaction, content going during this time. Um, so do not, you know, be shy about calling the voicemail line and leaving a weird story. Ask all your different baseball questions that you could possibly have in the mailbag. Uh, you can tweet us, uh, at Yankees podcast. You can DM us. You can email at bronxpinstripes.com slash podcast, or you can email me, Andrew at bronxpinstripes.com. If you have a question, um, also take a minute to rate and review the show. Uh, those have been extremely helpful. They boost the the show status in iTunes and, and all the different networks that you guys may be listening to. The more ratings and reviews, the better. It makes the show have higher visibility. So if you've enjoyed the show for a week, 10 weeks, five years, give us a five-star rating and review. It really does mean a lot and, and we appreciate it. All right, let's get into this episode with Connor talking about the Orioles. One last thing before we get started. Connor has a little bit of technical difficulty in like the first two or three minutes of the episode. Uh, Don't worry, it clears up. It only lasts for a few seconds. Uh, He's answering a question and he kind of cuts out. That clears up uh, throughout the rest of the episode and it's good from there. So don't worry, that gets better. All right, let's go. Joining the podcast to preview the Baltimore Orioles is Connor Newcomb. He hosts the Locked On Orioles podcast. And whenever we do get baseball, you just said, now they're going to be a 30-win baseball team, your beloved Baltimore Orioles. Connor, welcome. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Andrew, for having me. And and yeah, it seems like this season will probably at least be, be cut in half. Um, and so, you know, a 50 or 60-win team, um, they're going to, with an asterisk next to it, maybe set a record for the fewest amount of wins in a season. Yeah, that's not a record you want to uh, really be a part of. But the Orioles, I guess that's what you're dealing with for the last year and a half, two years with this Orioles team. Before we get to like all that stuff, though, because I mean the caveat is we don't know when baseball is going to start. So you know you can preview something now in late March and it'll be different by June or July when maybe they do get the season going. But like, how are how are the Orioles handling the shutdown? What did they decide to do? Because I know some teams have decided to stay in camp. Other teams decided to just go home. Uh, the Orioles decided to to go home, um, and they decided to let them go home and go back to their home cities. Um, so that's kind of what has happened. They have dispersed um, the minor leaguers, and as quickly as the major league guys, they were kind of told to stay for a little bit longer. But uh, they have begun to disperse as well. So the Orioles have have mostly left Florida, I believe, at this point. Well, the I don't know if you saw this. The Yankees had a couple minor leaguers test positive for it. Um, one guy was confirmed, I think, on Monday, and now there might be another one. So, and these minor leaguers, it's interesting, like with these minor leaguers, because it's you don't really feel bad for a major league player. Even the minimum guys are making half a million dollars a year. They're going to be fine. But these minor leaguers who have jobs in the offseason really don't get paid a fair wage for the amount of hours they put in. It's like they have nowhere to go. Yeah, it's it's um, it's crazy to see because they don't get paid basically anything to play. 
Um, and they're still being told, you know, you got to stay in shape. You got to stay ready to go for yeah. whenever this season happens, because it's not like, you know, something happened or, or, or there's a labor dispute where you can say, oh, you know, in a month we'll have this figured out. Nobody has any idea when baseball is going to happen. So you've got to be kind of strung along, look for another job. But you also can't take a job that, you know, isn't OK with you leaving abruptly in six weeks if if the season starts again. And, you know, just being around minor leaguers, I worked in minor league baseball last summer and kind of see what they go through. Um, just financially as well, it's it's got to be really, really tough for them. Yeah, and it's not a knock on them, but a lot of the jobs that they probably have in the offseason are hourly-based jobs, and many of those jobs are service industry, and those don't exist right now because everything's shutting down. So uh, it's just like another layer to this whole situation that is probably going to get lost in the shuffle because all anyone cares about is when the major league players are going to get back and when we can watch baseball again on TV and go to games. But um, yeah, I've kind of gone um, down rabbit holes reading about all all the different minor league angles to this. But how would you, uh, you know, because it seems like we're going to be more than a month, more than eight weeks without baseball. It's probably going to be in the season. Uh, it's probably going to be in the summer when baseball returns. How do you want to see baseball handle the schedule? Because they're still reportedly trying to get all 162, and I don't know how that's going to happen. They're going to have to play three games a day. Yeah, I mean, I'm a proponent of, you know, no matter what, shortening the schedule a little bit anyway, not just this nice. year, but, but overall. You're on my I'd, side. I'd like, it's not a popular opinion amongst baseball fans. Yeah, I'd like to see them shorten it and actually play everybody. Um, and you just play, you know, the teams in the AL maybe once instead of twice. Um, you play your division opponents a little less and you get to play everybody in the National League, you know, for an American League team and vice versa. I'd like to see that. <laughs> That won't happen this year, obviously, because they have enough to worry about. But, you know, say they come back in, in June or July. I mean, I'd like to to see them just kind of take where they would be at that point in the season, whether it's 100 games left, 90 games left, 80 games left, and kind of make it succinct so that, you know, if they're at a point where there'd be like 77 games left, maybe they just put it to, to 82 or put it to 90 or something and, yeah. and extend the end of the season a little bit, find like a – the closest even number right around where they would be and just play from there. It's going to be impossible to get 162 in unless you want to be playing potentially the World Series at Yankee Stadium in January, uh, which I don't think anyone wants to see happen. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to see them just just shorten it where they are. Um, and I think it would be interesting if if they came back and we got like a like an 81 game season, basically split in half and how teams would manage things differently in, in that scenario. I think there's looking at the positives of this situation. I think there's a lot of interesting things and what a shorter season looks like is definitely one of the things I'm interested in. But how do you feel about the thing that I saw discussed where they would play baseball? pretty much through November and December, but they would just use neutral site fields in warm weather or in domes. Like, so the world series could be the Yankees Dodgers in Miami. Yeah. I mean, if they're going to do it that way, obviously that's basically the way you have to do it is, is play it, you know, down in Miami and um, probably mostly in Florida, maybe some other places in the South. Maybe you could go to California, maybe. Um, but I think that could work. I just feel like um, with all this going on and, and whenever baseball comes back, the thing is, you know, say it comes back in June, it's not like the coronavirus in the U.S. is going to be completely wiped out when baseball comes back. It'll just be controlled. We'll have flattened the curve at some point. Um, hopefully there's a vaccine or something, but it'll still be an issue that's on people's minds. So it, it doesn't feel like still playing 140, 150 games is the best scenario. And, and there may be a point where, 
you know, it gets to to a point in the season where they start playing, but even if they start playing in June or July, they still do it with no fans for a while. And so how many games is baseball really going to want to play without fans and without all that revenue? So I could see them doing, you know, the games in Miami and or the games in the domes, um, you know, it, when it's cold outside to, to get the games in in December, you know, but at that point, you're really running into football. Um, you're really running into basketball. And I know, you know, MLB wants more and more viewers. You don't want to be playing up to week 15 of the NFL season um, and having to deal with with losing viewers to that as well. The Orioles played a game, I forget the opponent, but with no one in the stands pretty recently. And they were talked about how weird it was. They could hear the announcers calling basically the TV broadcast and the radio broadcast from the mound because there's no one in the stands. There's no noise drowning it out. So I don't know if they would do it in major league stadiums. That to me seems a little unnecessary. They could do it pretty much anywhere with no fans, but um, like, that's just another thing that to me won't feel like baseball. Yeah. uh, It was back in 2015. The Euros played a game in front of no fans against the white Sox actually um, because of the, the situation surrounding the, uh, the arrest and the death of Freddie Gray um, in Baltimore and the protests that ensued, and and they made the decision that it would be safe just to have no fans in the stadium, and it right. was, it, it was weird to watch. Um, the natural sounds you got on that broadcast were phenomenal. I mean, crack of the bat, like ball into the mitt, was was something you'll like you'll never get unless you're sitting right behind home plate. Um, Gary Thorne, the Orioles TV play-by-play announcer, you know, had some fun with it, announced an inning like he was Jim Nance at the Masters and like his whisper voice. Um, <laughs> I love Gary and, Thorne. He's he's yeah, an underrated play-by-play guy. He had some hilarious calls last year when Glaber Torres was oh, just yeah. hitting homer he, after homer. He's fantastic. Caleb Joseph was signing baseballs and just throwing them into empty stands. Um, (laughs) It was it it was it was very well done by the players to kind of keep it light. But, you know, if that happens for that's a a one off. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. Weeks and weeks and weeks of that is going to get old, I'd imagine. And I have to I would think for a player um, after you've done that a dozen times, you know, you, you start to it's not going to be the same where there's no fans in the stands. You don't have the same energy to play. Like I'm sure fans screaming at you, good or bad drives you to perform. And when it's game 25 of no fans in the crowd, it's just not, it's going to feel more like practice than it is an actual game. So I don't know. I'd much rather see a shortened season than, than any weird things like that. But uh, getting into the Orioles, cause we're going to preview them for whenever they do start playing baseball again. Um, what are you looking forward to this year? Ooh, well, um, I mean, in general, I am looking forward to baseball being played yeah. um, at some point. And, you know, half of that is, you know, being excited to watch other teams as well. Um, but obviously, I'll, I'll be, you know, focused in on the Orioles. And uh, first of all, I mean, the most exciting player, obviously, on the Orioles right now is Trey Mancini. Um, but that's even another layer to this Orioles story. Um, he had a procedure a couple weeks ago and had left the team in spring training before kind of all this coronavirus stuff really started to hit. Um, and it was not released what was going on with him. They just knew it was a medical issue and he had left the team. It turns out that he had a malignant tumor in his colon that he had to get surgically removed. Um, and there's still no word on, you know, when he would be ready to play baseball if baseball happens, you know, somewhat soon. So that is kind of, you know, 
at the back of Orioles fans' minds as well. Now, it helps him that this season's been delayed because, you know, there's much less of a chance that he misses time. But for him more, it's about his personal health. So that's kind of put a damper on the number one excitement thing for the Orioles is, you know, great, they didn't trade Trey Mancini. Now we get to watch him and hopefully make his first All-Star team. Instead, that's been, you know, the story surrounding him. But, But kind of besides Mancini, it's really about, you know, who do they bring up this year? Because this is kind of the first year where the guys who maybe weren't drafted by Mike Elias, but who were top prospects and who are part of this rebuild, 2020 is kind of the first season. We'll see those guys come to the big leagues a little bit. So I think that's probably the number one thing to watch behind Mancini. Is You said they didn't trade Mancini, so we get to watch him. They traded everyone else, in, including VR, who was your best by some metrics best player last year and it's a it was a money thing the reason why they traded him so i'm sure that pissed a lot of people off but is mancini if he does come back healthy is that a mid-season trade candidate if we even have a mid-season deadline because that might be out the window too we have no clue yeah i mean he's he's obviously if he comes back healthy and hitting like he did last year you know he had a he had a 35 home run season last year hit 291 um he will be a, a trade candidate he's a guy who's who's signed through 2022. So he's got a lot of, a lot of time still on, on his rookie contract basically. Um, and if a team really needs a corner outfielder or just a hitter in their lineup that they can tr- control for a while, um, it seemed like there for a little bit that Cleveland might make a move for him just cause it always felt like the Indians needed outfielders. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of went to this weird mode now where we're not actually sure what they're going to do. Know, Are they going to trade Lindor? Are they going to go for it at all? So that kind of went out the window um, for that. But but if Mancini continues to hit like that, I mean, he's the number one guy who could bring back more prospects. The interesting thing about it is, though, you know, two years ago, the Orioles shipped everybody off at the deadline. Manny Machado, Jonathan Scope, Kevin Gaussman, just to name a few. And that was kind of the core group of guys who could bring back prospects to help the rebuild. Mancini and maybe Michael Givens, if he turns it around this year, are really the only guys who are left who will bring back any prospects. And Mancini is still a guy I think they're thinking about trying to re-sign. So it'll be pretty interesting because the Orioles will be a rebuilding team with almost maybe nothing to deal away, which is not something you usually see too often. What is Mancini's contract situation? When is he arbitration? Yeah, so he um, arbitration next year, I believe. So he hasn't even um, or, hit arbitration yet. Or he may have been this year. Okay, but that it's, is a good. But he's got at least two more years left of team control. So if they want to yes. hang on to him for this year and see how it pans out, and then they could trade him in the offseason. Because you do, for guys like that, especially in contract years, you get more before the season than you ever would in season, especially for, for position yeah. players. Pitchers are a different question, but like – the return they got from Manny Machado, you'd think it would be a building block for a franchise, but it I don't think it turned out that way, right? Yeah, for the Manny Machado return, we're kind of going to find out this year. Um, the top guy in that trade, Yusniel Diaz, uh, an outfielder, who was the Orioles' number one prospect when the trade happens. I think he's, he's in the low part of the top 10 right now. Uh, he's going to be major league ready probably this year. So we're going to start to figure that out. But um, yeah, for Mancini, arbitration eligible 2021. So actually, um, that'll be next season. Um, and then he'll be controlled through 2022 or 2023, I believe. So he's got a lot of still team control left, um, you know, and 
And maybe he is a guy who the Orioles think, you know, if we can compete by 2022, I don't know if that's keep possible, him around but keep as him around. Like the veteran presence who's been there through through all the bad times sort of thing. Right, which will be so weird to think about because Trey Mancini came up at the very end of the Orioles' run of, you know, having the most wins in the American League over five years. He yeah. was a, a rookie on the 2016 team that lost in the wildcard game with the Blue Jays. Um, didn't even start that game, was just a, a bat off the bench. Um, and then kind of broke out in 2017 when the Orioles kind of started to to dip downward that year. So he was always the young guy, you know, that was never really part of winning teams. So it'll be interesting if if that does happen and he becomes the veteran if they start to win again at some point. Yeah, it's interesting how the Orioles fell off so fast because you're right. They had a really good run in the American League. They went to they go to two championship series in that time. One, championship, one championship series, three three playoff appearances in five years. Okay. And then they they signed Chris Davis like they were a big market team. Like, hey, we don't care. We'll spend twenty plus million dollars on a first baseman. Everyone is telling us is not worth this kind of money. But then they do other things that are like a small market team. But in reality, they're a mid market team. So it's just their their behavior, uh, just from an outsider's perspective, is just contradictory. Yeah, it was. Uh, everybody knows at this point the Chris Davis contract is. Definitely the top five of worst in all of sports right now. Uh, Yankees, uh, um, but the Yankees had, I think, the worst. So, Jacoby Ellsbury. I, that that's fair. That's fair because he's not even playing. At least Chris the Davis games. At least Chris baseball. Davis is on the field. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's why I said top five to give it a caveat. Um, but yeah, I mean he's he's under two hitting under two hundred every year. A billion strikeouts. The home runs are not there. Um, he and hit if you well couldn't in spring. hit home runs last year, then you're never going to hit home yeah. runs. He, he hit well in spring training this year, and of course, finally he does that. Now the season's off for however long. But um, we'll see with Chris Davis. But it's interesting because they almost did that, and then they also you know, had never really paid for a pitcher. Mm. That was kind of the other thing. And then they somewhat dipped their toe into doing that when they signed Ubaldo Jimenez Right. I think it was like four four years, fifty million. Now, not a crazy huge deal, but for the Orioles, that was like whoa, big money for a starting pitcher. Uh, he had one half of a good season out of those four years and was pretty horrendous the rest of the time. So, if you combine those two contracts, that one with Chris Davis, it almost yet again scared off the last Orioles regime from spending. Now they're in the middle of a full rebuild, so they're not going to spend. So, I'm very interested to see, you know, if they in a couple years from now maybe get back to, to being a contender. I've in my lifetime, I've never seen the Orioles really spend on free agents ever. You know, they've they've locked up their own guys, but I've never seen them go out and really spend for long term contracts or bringing in guys as free agents. And so it'll be interesting to see if that would be in Mike Elias's plan. It would almost kind of be a culture shock to Orioles fans, I think. Yeah, it wasn't I know one of the contracts 10 years ago that they were looking to sign was to share big contract in 2009 off season. And I think they were in the running with the Yankees for the, one of the last remaining teams he was deciding between. Um, so it's, it, it'd be interesting, you know, had to share decided on the Orioles, how that would have changed things because I mean, that was an even bigger contract than um, I think Chris Davis got. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, to share is a local kid. He's from Maryland, right. um, which is kind of the big thing. Why that was always, talked about you know when when he was in texas and and would he become an oriole 
Um, and when it didn't happen, there was kind of some some hatred from Orioles fans uh, to Mark Teixeira. Yeah, but he always really got booed whenever he would get announced at Camden Yards, which I found I found hilarious. And that was why. But if you really think about it, I'm sure the Yankees offered much more money to play for a better team. Yeah. So if you're Mark Teixeira, why would you not take that? Yeah. And then it happened again. Um, it was interesting. After the 2011 season, Prince Fielder was a free agent. Um, and it happened again. And he didn't have the same connection to to Baltimore. But there was always this aura like the Orioles are finally going to spend and they're going to go hard after Prince Fielder. And the same thing kind of happened with Teixeira where they were in it a little bit but never really enough to be one of the final teams. Um, that's when you kind of just knew they're never really going to spend on free agents. They do it for their own guy in Chris Davis. It backfires and it kind of went downhill. So with Chris Davis, when you see him come up to bat now, are you do you hate him? Are you apoplectic? Do you do you just go numb? You have no feelings. Like what is the feelings amongst the fan base towards Davis? It's it's so interesting because if you just put it in a vacuum of say uh, maybe 2017 until now, we'll say 2016 until now, which is really since he signed the contract after the 2015 season. If you just looked at that. You would you would probably think Orioles fans hate every time he steps on the field. Right. But if you look before that, he hit 53 homers in 2013 when he was third in AL MVP voting that year. He hit 47 homers uh, in his 2015 season in his contract year, which made the Orioles do that deal. Um, and had always been a, a good first baseman. He was like a good community guy, and, and he continues to be. He donates a lot of his money to uh, children's hospitals in Maryland, like a lot of the money he's made from that. Now I'm not talking 25 plus percent of the contract, but you know, millions of dollars right, to children's yeah. hospitals um, in Maryland, which, you know, I think obviously a good PR move and also just the kind of guy he is, which makes it hard to, to hate on him sometimes. Um, but I kind of take the view of what he did was awesome. And I almost get mad at the Orioles more than Chris Davis. Cause it's like, Okay, yes, you saw the 53 homers and the 47 homers, but the year in between in 2014, the Orioles won the AL East. They won 96 games with Chris Davis hitting 196 and only hitting 26 homers and getting a 25-game suspension and missing the playoffs at the end of the year because he didn't get his Adderall approved and he got suspended. So if you think about it, like the Orioles' best season they've had in 20 years happened without him doing anything. And you add that to the fact that, you know, you can see from the numbers that even though he's hitting homers, he strikes out at such a high rate that it's if he's not hitting 40 plus homers, he, you know, becomes a liability sometimes. And it's almost more of an anger towards the Orioles organization every time he comes up to bat than than to him personally. I Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I always blame the GM and the ownership for deciding to give bad contracts out. Don't blame a player for taking a lot of money because we'd all do the same thing in their situation. So if you can if you can get $100 plus million from a team, take the $100 million and whether you're worth it or not, just, I, I guess, put it in the bank like, like Davis is doing. So it's – all right, so Chris Davis is, is one thing. Trey Mancini, if he's on the field, probably their best player other than Mancini – who who would you say the most fearful hitter a Yankees fan or any other fan should uh, have when that guy comes to the plate for the Orioles? Yeah, so I think the one thing about you know being a fan of another team in the division is, yes, the Orioles are really bad right now, but the one thing is you'll kind of get to know some of these younger guys and, and who might hurt your team in the future because um, 
these prospects will start to come up this year. I would keep an eye on Austin Hayes. Um, so he'll be the opening day center fielder whenever opening day happens uh, this year for the Orioles. So Hay- Hayes is is kind of interesting. He came up back in 2017 when he was almost supposed to be the not replacement for Adam Jones at that point because Jones was still playing pretty well, but a guy who, if Jones were to fall off, would be the replacement in center field. Then he got hurt. He didn't hit very well. Um, he was injured a lot of 2018, didn't come to the big leagues at all in 2018. Then he made it back to the big leagues at the end of last year, played about 25 games um, at the end of last season, and he hit 309 last year for the Orioles at the end of the year, made some spectacular plays in center, um, ended up being worth about one win last year in only about 25 games. So he actually he played pretty well at the end of last season. Uh center field job is his um, good power hitter, 20, 24 years old, um, just hit 25 to 30 homers a season, could be a, a 300 hitter, can can steal a couple bases for you maybe if you want, um, and a really good outfielder. So he's kind of the guy that, you know, if opening day were happening on March 26th, I would probably pencil in Austin Hayes as the Orioles' leadoff hitter and starting center fielder. And with him being that young um, and having so much control left, He'll be a guy that'll be around for a while, and Orioles fans are hoping, you know, is the next sort of Adam Jones guy in center field. Yeah, and I guess the only real downside for having a shortened season for you and for the Orioles is it's less time for these guys to develop. So, but in that sense, it could be a, a, a negative, I guess. And and I, I I did find it interesting. So they moved on from Buck Showalter, went to Brandon Hyde, and that transition was obviously because. You know, the the organization, the team's moving in a different direction. Buck Walter is capable of managing a, a good team to a winning record. He's I don't know if he's going to stick around for another rebuild. So how has that transition to Brandon Hyde been? Yeah, you know, it's it's so hard to to read that right now because you bring in Hyde in an impossible situation to win. Um, you've just traded your entire team the last year um, instead of having Manny Machado and Jonathan Scope um, you have guys like Rio Ruiz and Renato Nunez uh, in your infield instead. Um, and so it, it made it really hard to to kind of take that into effect because a lot of people, when you look at managers, you're looking for in-game decision-making, you know, in big moments and close games late. Um, and obviously, if you don't count what happened in the AL wildcard game in 2016 and Zach Britton never pitching, Buck Showalter was really good at that until that one moment. Um, I know he's never going to live that down in Baltimore. He really isn't. Um, but for, for Brandon Hyde, you know, you got a little bit of that because, you know, they won 54 games and they played some close games, but he didn't have, you know, good relievers to go to. He wasn't playing, you know, high leverage games for his team and he wasn't playing in a lot of games where they were winning because the team just wasn't good. So it's almost hard to, to, you know, great amount in that sense. Um, but as far as, as a leadership and kind of buying in, uh, it, it went well in in year one. Him and Mike Elias seemed to get along well, um, both buying into the process. You know, the way he would answer questions, he kind of knows that, you know, because people would ask him questions about winning and doing different things in the lineup and this and that. And he'd answer the questions as a manager, but it also it would always have kind of the caveat of like, look, yes, we're going to do this, this and this. But this not that, you know, this isn't my nine I'm going to have when we're winning, but almost like, a, you know, this is about a rebuild and maybe he did leave that pitcher in one or two batters too long, you know, in the eighth inning. But that guy's 23 years old 
and maybe that'll help him out two years from now that he he learned how to you know face or get through two innings out of the bullpen instead of just yeah. being a one inning reliever. So it was a lot of stuff like that last year, which I think you know it, it's been good so far for Hyde. Um, and people still love Buck. It just hurts so much that he made that one just awful decision. Um, well, sometimes or you can't, sometimes no matter your track record, he, he won a lot in Baltimore. He's just not going to overcome something like that. Yeah. Because it was so obvious the wrong decision. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not even guaranteed that the Orioles win that game, but they no, definitely lost that game because Zach Brin didn't pitch that inning. So right. it's there. It's so easy to point to. It's, it's never going to live it down. Yeah. That, that game, I mean, you know, it goes past the 11th if Zach Burton pitches because he probably comes in and puts up a zero in the 11th because he had a 0.54 ERA on the yeah. season. Um, and he could go two innings. So, you know, if you don't score, it probably goes past the 12th as well. Now, after that, you don't know because he never really pitched more than two innings. And then maybe you do have to go to Ubaldo Jimenez at that point. And the offense hadn't had a base runner uh, or at least hadn't had a hit since like the sixth or seventh inning in that game. So I don't know if they would have really scored a run. But so you could have still lost. But at least if you lose that way and you pitch two scoreless innings from Britain and then you have to go to Ubaldo Jimenez, you understand it a little bit more than having the best reliever in baseball standing in the bullpen. Yeah, if it's your last if if Jimenez is the last guy to go to, then fine. That's that's what you're that's the cards you were dealt. I can tell though this still eats at you. So you could you could just do like we don't have anything any games to talk about. You could just rehash this game every day for like the next week. I I'm, I can tell that in you. Yeah, and it's it hurts more because it's the last playoff game the Orioles have been in. 2016 AO Wildcard game, they haven't played you know, they've played meaningful games because most of 2017 they were in the race until the very end, but they haven't played nearly as meaningful of a game. And in September, every year since they've been out of it, so they haven't really played those September games. So that's been the last time, you know, that that I remember and, and really kind of the, you know, the more personal part of it. That's the last time that I've probably gotten together with like a large group of mm. people with everyone intently watching and hanging on every pitch of an Orioles game. And for it to end like that, that's why it hurts so much. And for a guy who Orioles fans basically thought of like as the savior of this organization um, back when he came and became the manager back in in 2010 to have that decision be made for for basically his last big decision as Orioles manager because they didn't make the playoffs after that, it hurts a lot. Buck was on a track record where he would manage a team and then leave and then they would win a World Series because he left the Yankees, they won. He left the Diamondbacks, they won. He left the Rangers, they didn't win the World Series, but they did go to two World Series. I guess the Orioles were the, the team that finally went in the other direction after Buck left. Yeah, it was, you know, some of his leaving those other teams was like, uh, you're good, but we just want to go one step up. Yeah. This was, wow, we're in the middle of a rebuild and we just want to make everything a change, which was a lot different for him um, in the way he's left teams in the past. So, so yeah. I don't know how old you are, so I don't know how old you were during the Jeffrey Mayer game uh, in 96, but does that, is that like among Orioles fans, does that still drop more? Like people pissed off than the Zach Britton not being brought into the wild card game. Uh, generally, generationally, I think there's a split on what's the most um, aggravating Orioles playoff moment. Um, I was not alive for that. Oh, geez. Um, for that Jeffrey Meyer um, to to show off my age on this podcast. Um, but uh, obviously, know all about it. Um, have seen it a hundred times uh, and know it should have been an out. 
um, and called fan interference, and it wasn't. I think for the fans that you know grew up with that team in the 90s um, and how good those teams were in 96 and 97, and I think the other difference is in 2016, yeah, it hurt, but Orioles fans don't really think they should have won the World Series in 2016. Even in 2014 when they won the division, went to the ALCS, there was a thought that, oh, we might go to the World Series, but it was never this is the best team in baseball. In 96 and 97, a lot of Orioles fans thought one of those two years they should have won the World Series and were one of the two or three best teams in baseball. So overall, that one probably hurts a little bit more just because of that. So who did they lose to in 97? So 97, um, they beat Seattle and then lost to Cleveland, in I the, believe. In the championship series. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. the Yankees lost to Cleveland in 97 in the division series. Yeah, I know. I, I always I always say Tarasco should have jumped, and then maybe he would have caught it before <laughs> Jeffrey Mayer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but, um, all right, last question I have for, for the 2020 Orioles whenever they start playing. Can Alex Cobb be anything? Well, um, he'll hopefully be more than he was last year, which was on the IL for the entirety of the season besides, I think, two starts at the beginning. Um, so if he pitches at all, that's an upgrade because for a team that – the pitching prospects are not ready yet, so it's kind of a, a plug-and-play for this rotation. If he can just throw like, well, if it were a 162-game season, I'd say 150 innings. So maybe if he can throw you know, whatever the equivalent to that is for how many games we play, that many innings, that's all Orioles fans. like. It's okay if his ERA is five. If he can just pitch this year, that's step one for him. But, I mean, obviously it'd be great if he got back to his Tampa Bay Days back yeah, in 2013 and 14, really solid pitcher for Tampa. when he he had one of the best changeups in baseball. That kind of odd windup he's got with the hitch in it that really fooled hitters with the off speed stuff. If he could do that, you know the ERAs and the threes, and he's striking out guys at a lot higher rate, and he becomes a trade piece at some point this year. I mean that's best case scenario uh, in the last year of his deal here with the Orioles. But um, I think the thing they would like is just him to pitch innings. Well, one thing I'm I'm find interesting for this season is that everyone's going to be on extended rest everyone is going to be fresher in the summer and then whenever the playoffs start we might see better performances out of guys than we ordinarily would have Alex Cobb might come and pitch more like he was in Tampa because he's just healthier and that's just like a wild card that I don't know how we would evaluate I don't know how we can gauge but I'm just like leaving open that possibility that we might see performances we might not ordinarily get. Yeah, and that's and that'd be great for Orioles fans. They'd love to see Cobb. And that's kind of the thing about him. I mean, they just they brought him over um at the beginning of twenty eighteen when, you know, the team didn't quite know yet that the it was gonna collapse and win only forty seven games that year. They were coming off a season in twenty seventeen where they were in the wild card race until like the second week of September and then fell apart. So they were like, okay, maybe we can do this again. You know, they still had Machado and Jones and Scope and all those guys. And then when it really fell apart in in twenty eighteen, they, you know, realized it was rebuild time. But but for Cobb, you know, they've never really seen him pitch in in big games with the Orioles because, you know, his first year they were bad. Last year he didn't pitch at all. And now he comes in and they were hoping he could be a guy who could win some big games for them when they signed him. Um, instead, he's just been a guy who struggled with injury. I mean, he had a 4.90 ERA and 28 starts in 2018. If, he, if they got that out of him for this season, 
they would 100% take that. And and maybe he does, you know, with all this rest and coming back from injury, the strikeouts go back up, the change-ups there, and he becomes a solid pitcher because the Orioles are going to need solid pitchers because yeah. John Means is their ace. He was their only all-star last year, but he's kind of, you know, any second away from getting blown up sometimes because he's not a strikeout pitcher. He pitches to contact, and that can be trouble when you're playing the Yankees and the Rays 19 times in a season. So behind him, their number two is going to be Alex Cobb. So they would love for him to even somewhat return to that old form. Listen, man, I watched 19 games of Orioles games last year because they played the Yankees 19 times, and that pitching staff was brutal. It's just you knew at some point during the game a three-run home run was coming, and it seemed yeah. like it happened every time. And, and it, it was usually Glaber Torres as well. It was so usually Glaber can... Torres, although Gary Sanchez in an – I think he hit like seven home runs in nine games against him or something. Like that, that sounds about right. Yeah. So, um, hey, man, I appreciate it. You guys can check out Connor on Twitter at Connor Newcomb underscore. He does a daily podcast, Locked On Orioles podcast, and play-by-play announcer for Johns Hopkins. So once sports get going again, you're going to be a busy man. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks a lot, Andrew. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Make sure you find us on iTunes and subscribe so you can get all new episodes directly onto your phone. If you do like the show, we'd love for you to take a minute and give us a five-star rating and review in iTunes. It really helps us out and allows us to create more shows. We're on Twitter at Bronx Pinstripes and the same on Facebook. You can always find us there talking Yankee baseball. Thanks again, guys, for your support. Really appreciate it. And go Yankees.